Hello and welcome to another episode of our podcast from the Blue Earth Summit, a movement and community driving positive action for our natural world. In this series, we'll bring you some of the highlight talks and conversations from our first summit in Bristol in October 2021. In this episode, Beyond Inspired, what can I do? Instigating change can take time. Trying to get people to behave a certain way doesn't often pan out the way we want. But what about when it concerns the planet? Psychology can be a powerful thing. Utilised by everyone from governments to campaigning organisations, it can help influence opinion and behaviour, for better or worse. Spreading the right message through the right channels at the right time can have dramatic results. In this talk from our main stage in 2021, find out how the power of psychology and the power of media are being used to influence ecological preservation. To help us understand how concern for the environment can be turned into action, join Jackie Wilmshurst, a risk psychologist and former army officer with an appetite for living her work, Tim Schoons, biologist and BAFTA-winning natural history producer, and conservation biologist Alastair Ward. So what we're going to do for the next half hour is bring this really back to you using some things I think are useful from my perspective that I feel um, I can bring to this this great big web of challenges that we have. Um, But before I start to say too much more about that, um, we are going to talk about psychology as a discipline, what it is, what it isn't, but not in an academic sense, just in why is it useful here. Um, And then I'm going to introduce you to an approach that is completely practical, incredibly simple. It doesn't necessarily mean it's easy, but it's it's a tool that often isn't used when it could be. And I'm going to say more about that later. So I'm a psychologist. I think psychology matters. Of course I do. But actually, there's a couple of other people here are going to tell you why psychology matters too. I've had what I consider a really fortunate career so far. Spent 16 years working as a wildlife biologist and a conservationist for government agencies and um, then uh, wildlife charities as well. But it's now my privilege to be a lecturer at university um, and I teach around about 50 to 100 undergraduate and postgraduate students every year in the principles of conservation biology. Every year I go to graduation, it's my favourite event of the year, I wear my cap and gown uh, and I celebrate the success of my students and I watch 200 students every single year who are trained in biological sciences, all of whom have an understanding of the biodiversity crisis that we're facing. My institution is one of 107 institutions across the UK who train students in biological sciences. There are 27,000 Students graduate every single year in biological sciences and all have some training in the biodiversity crisis. My graduates understand the intrinsic beauty of something as complex and wonderful as a coral reef. They've evaluated its economic value by looking at the uh, the, uh, ecosystem services that they provide. They understand that without these sorts of things, our lives are impoverished. And in fact, they may become impacted in ways that we've yet to predict. So why? Why are we still facing a biodiversity crisis? Why are we seeing unprecedented rates of species loss? My students understand. I've inspired them about the conservation imperative, about the biodiversity crisis. They know what needs to be done. Why don't they just get on and do it? Tim, what's your experience? I started out just like Alistair, um, biologist by training. I knew I wanted to be a conservationist when I was six. Asked my parents. 
And I always thought I was going to do that. I was going to study something and I was going to help save it. And I traveled around the world. I did lots of different projects with different people. And all along, in this is, I was 18 then, but you know, in my early 20s, I was asking, what's my path? What can I do? What am I going to do? What's going to be my impact? How can I help? And I was in Zimbabwe working with national parks there. And the head of research there, Rowan Martin, again, another incredible visionary in, in conservation. Very lucky to work with him. Unbelievably frustrated. And to my complete surprise, he said, Tim, you should go into the media. And I was like, what? I'm a scientist. I've, tra I've trained as a scientist. And here's the line that has actually dictated what I did for the rest of my life. And he said, Tim, this is back in 1989. He said, Tim, we have won all of the intellectual arguments, but we are losing the communications war, right? To Alistair's point, we know this stuff. We've known it since the 70s. So why aren't things changing? And that's what we are here to talk to you about today. So what did I do? I went into the media. So I did independent stuff, and I ended up at the BBC Natural History Unit, and I made things like that, some of which you may have seen. Lots and lots of telly, lots of different types of things. And then uh, I built and ran the watches. So I was the executive producer of Springwatch for nearly 15 years. And that did great things. Scotland still does. You know, gets people involved, you know, get, gives people a sense of agency, which I think was unique in broadcasting. It wasn't sit back, it was sit forward. Great. But still, it wasn't quite enough. So five years ago, I left telly and went back to conservation, where I am now, if you like, an activist. And I realized that having tried and tried and tried to win the communications war, there was still something missing. And I, like Alistair, was very lucky in that we both met Jackie. And I met her on the set of Springwatch, believe it or not. Um, and Jackie changed my life. Um, because Jackie started to explain some of the things I was trying to do, but explain them in real psychological um, um, Uh, uh, the science of psychology to actually understand how people think, how people develop their ideas, and crucially, how people act. So, like Alistair, I've tried and I've tried and I've tried, but we've both realized that there was something missing. And Jackie filled that gap. So, Jackie, here's the missing link. So, that's a big gap to fill. However, let's be clear, I don't have all the answers. Absolutely not. However, As Tim said, and as to what I tend to find from my psychology training is often there are some quite simple ways to have a look at what we're doing and recognize it's full of assumptions. It's full of our own biases. I hear a lot of people saying, how do we get people? They're over there somewhere to do X, Y, and Z, rather than how do we, how do we understand ourselves and everybody else? And there are tons and tons of things that I could talk to you about, about what psychology is, what psychology does. All I will say is one of the first misconceptions, if I say I'm a psychologist, is that I'm a therapist, a clinical psychology, that I treat individual people. I don't. I have an applied research background. So my whole background has been understanding how we make sense of risks and challenges, how we formulate our decisions, how we act on them or don't. And when I bring that into different places, um, that's the kind of psychology I do. What psychology is not, I will come on to in a minute. 
conservation psychology is a fairly new, um, it's really what we call an area of application. It's whichever bits of psychology are helpful. Bits of clinical psychology are helpful in terms of our well-being and how our interactions with nature can boost ourselves and be reciprocal. We've got health psychology, social psychology, there's all sorts of bits of psychology. But what matters is that when we look at the evidence, psychology is a science. Psychology is a systematic science that produces evidence. It's actually that simple. And when we use the evidence, it helps us not trip up and do all the trial and error of why aren't people doing what I'm telling them, why aren't they listening, and actually be able to be a bit more systematic. So there is a model I'm going to talk you through in a moment, which is one of many, but it's an offering and it's an invitation and it's something we're going to explore more in our workshop afterwards. What psychology is not is when I have met groups of people who've said, you know, we are, it could be scientists, it could be other practitioners who say we realise that the people side is the bit that we need to tackle because we need to get people to dot, dot, dot. And I'll maybe say, oh, you know, I'm a psychologist, I'd love to have some input into that. And time and time again, I'll hear, oh, we do do psychology already. And I say, oh, that's wonderful. What, what's it? Let me know what you're doing. I'll see if there's anything I could add or anything I can help with. And they say, oh, it's the people stuff. We talk to people. We get them to fill in some forms. We engage. We grab them in a group. It's all good stuff, don't get me wrong. Being able to engage with people and we, we, we hear all the awareness raising. But actually, there are some really obvious, simple mistakes we can all make. One of my favorite phrases is, take my advice, I'm not using it, because constantly I have to remind myself that there are some really good checklists I could be following. Um, and that's where any of those things, when we use the evidence available to us, not only from psychology, but that's where I'm coming from, is that will really save us a lot of time and our successes will be far greater. I quite like this quote because it takes us right out of the academic scientific language and just simply says, if we're wanting to change other people, let alone us, or change ourselves first, but change other people, we need to have the proper training. So this is one of my offerings towards what that training can look like. I also, this is one of mine, the art of guyao. I just like that it sounds like a martial art and it gets people interested. It's actually the art of getting out of your own way, meaning that we're so busy wanting to change everybody else or we're so busy leaping around, we sometimes don't spot the fact that we're the ones stopping ourselves, we're the ones getting in our own way. It's actually not everybody else out there that's putting a spanner in the works for us. So there's a whole art to getting out of your own way. It's a lot of what I do in my professional practice, whether it's I do a lot of stuff around health psychology, resilience, understanding personal risk. So again, in a, in a sort of shortish talk, we're not going to go into great depth, but always think to yourself, if you're feeling like, why don't people dot, 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 why aren't people listening, why aren't people getting it, is have a quick look with yourself first okay? and, and, and have a look at, am I in my own way? And there are loads of ways we can look at that. We often, for example, again, something I have to check myself out on, spend hours and hours of time and energy, not least in the dead of night, lying awake in bed, trying to figure out things that are way outside of my control, outside of my area of influence. And something really helpful we can do for ourselves sometimes is look at all of the challenges, Look at all the things we've been inspired by. Listen to all the people who've talked and said they're all doing things in their spheres of influence, with their expertise, with their skills. Is how do we make sure that we're doing that for ourselves, that we're not flogging ourselves to start getting good at something or try an entire... Actually, about three times when I first met Alistair, I nearly, start, I nearly retrained as an ecologist because I thought that's what I ought to be doing because that's what the world probably needs more than what I'm trying to do until I recognise that what I already do can, can be brought to bear. So... We can, we can waste a lot of time. And so it's really helpful to say, what things do I have complete control over? Not a lot, usually yourself, certainly not other people. And where do I have influence? So this is really about assumptions. We are all loaded with them. 
all the, and biases. We, uh, there was a quote from Einstein about common sense is the collection of prejudices we've got by the age of 18. So we've got to get past sometimes saying, isn't it all just obvious? Should I get that? Surely the psychology stuff, it's just common sense, right? All you have to do is be a person and then you know how people work and then you just do stuff to people and then surely that all should work. And it doesn't. So I think this, again, is a far better way of explaining assumptions than I could do from the, uh, the, the cartoonist XKCD. So often we catch ourselves, as I said, there is the whole start with self to a point, but we spend a lot of time deciding that we want people. Who? The public, whoever that is, just people. We want them to do something different. This list up there, I'm not going to read them all out, but they're all psychological concepts that sound dead fancy until you realize they're really simple. And rather than stand here and explain them all to you, I've given you a little synopsis there of what it, what it is, um, but Alistair has some really good examples to bring those to life. So you may already have heard of some of these, but cognitive dissonance is what happens in our brain, and it's a bit like, it's a kind of hurty head thing, really, because it means that I just got new information, and the new information means that what I'm bundling along in life doing isn't quite right. I could be doing something different, or I could be doing something better. And before we decide to change anything, mentally or physically, cognitive dissonance just means there's a discord. I don't like how that feels, because what I'm doing is at odds with what I feel like I should be doing. So the example here is, is from a business trip I had a few, well, quite a few years ago now, where I was, I was sent off to an uninhabited Caribbean island, um, where we were planning to eradicate two invasive non-native species that were threatening the persistence of uh, some regionally uh, significant um, seabird colonies on the island. While the group of us were sitting in the ter airport terminal, uh, whiling away the interminable hours... Um, we got out our passports and started comparing passport stamps. And I have to admit to being a little bit boastful um, about the, uh, some of the exotic locations that I'd visited. One of our colleagues was from a, a well-known international um, conservation uh, uh, NGO, um, and they pulled out their really tatty, dog-eared passport that was absolutely full, every single page full of stamps um, that put the rest of us to absolute shame. Um, and the justification to assuage the carbon guilt uh, was, well, I'm doing it all in the name of conservation biology, so it's okay, right? I think it's also somewhat ironic that uh, to overcome my own cognitive dissonance, I'm using an example of someone else's carbon guilt to somewhat assuage my own. So with cognitive dissonance, the thing to be aware of is if you wanted someone to do something different and you think if only they knew better, they'd do better, the first thing you do when you take them your fabulous newfound knowledge is put them in a painful state of going, oh, I should really change something. What then happens is if you don't help them change it, they go into denial and they go, it's okay to do all the things I'm doing and it's because. And there are great examples of, for example, if somebody's smoking, they realise that's a very bad thing to do. And then they can come up with the anti-ethyl that they knew that lived to 102 despite smoking 20 cigarettes a day. Well outside as an outlier in terms of the probabilities and the risks. We will do mental gymnastics to get out of cognitive dissonance if we don't get help to get past it. And it's important with all of this because if you want to change people's behaviour, you've got to put them in that and get them back out of it. So it's worth being aware of. Um, there are some other things here, again, this is just a little whistle-stop of some of the things we can check. And again, fancy terms for something really simple. If we talk to people as if we're in a slightly authoritative parental role, it could be nurturing and caring, doesn't have to be critical, we can accidentally trip someone into what's quite a childlike response, either rebellious or overly compliant, and we don't recognise we've done it.
So this is an example from um, a grant application that I reviewed for the World Conservation Union's um, Integrated Tiger Habitat Conservation Programme, a programme that's funded by a major German bank uh, and which seeks to promote the conservation of tigers globally by joining up uh, the environments um, within which uh, they live, but recognising that those habitats are also occupied by people who have a right to be there. So the whole programme is about trying to conserve the tiger while also supporting the interests of the people while also reducing the conflicts between people and tigers. One of the applications I reviewed um, to uh, try and solve the problem of conflicts uh, uh, between people and tigers included, for example, the purchase of gas stoves so that the people didn't have to go into the forest uh, to collect firewood. Um, uh, uh, and, and therefore interfere in the tiger habitat. It also um, included the provision of better breeds of cattle um, so that they could uh, have lower stocking densities and therefore lower grazing within the forest and so reduce the impacts. And uh, very interestingly also IT training specifically for young girls. So to try and evaluate that proposal, I tried as best as I could as a middle-aged white man to put myself in the shoes of the recipients of all of those wonderful gifts. And I thought that, well, as a subsistence farmer, my response to being uh, given uh, a gas stove might be to continue collecting firewood and sell it and make a bit more money. If I was given improved breeds of cattle, I'd probably farm them at the highest stocking density I could so I could sell the surplus. Um, and, and, and again, improve my, my financial position. And if I was a young girl being offered IT training, the first question I might be asking or, uh, or would be, well, thank you very much, but how am I going to get the 200 kilometres to the office where I can put these skills to use? Or thanks, but no thanks, I actually want to be um, a, a world expert in, in survival, want nothing to do with IT, thanks very much. I'm pleased to say that the other reviewers um, equally felt that their proposal was taking a very parental tone and telling the local indigenous people what they had to do, what they had to accept, uh, and the proposal was not supported. And the final one I'm going to mention for now, in the interest of time, is something we call the intention behaviour gap. It gets called a various few things, but it's kind of self-explanatory. We can get really inspired with loads of good intentions, and then there's a really, really big leap between that and actually doing something different because we're getting in our own way or we're just not feeling resourced, we're not finding things that are within our control, within our, within our knowledge base, our skill set. So we get stuck with all these good intentions and then the gap in the middle. And so what we see in psychology is loads of ways to enable bridging that gap, which is what I'm going to be moving on to now. Um, I know, but time... Um, very, very quickly, um, so orangutans are an iconic species and they've been used very successfully by the WWF um, to promote a number of camp campaigns for their conservation. Um, there's around about 20 to 30 million US dollars a year spent on conserving the uh, Bornean orangutan alone. Um, and all of which is raised uh, by taxations and donations. The orangutans continue to be threatened by oil palm production. Um, but we need that oil palm production, right? Because without it... You can't buy a cellophane-wrapped piece of moist, delicious carrot cake from the supermarket for £2.99. I love carrot cake, but every time I buy carrot cake to eat it, I'm undermining the conservation of the very orangutans that I want to conserve. Thank you. So, we have all of these ways in which we can get caught up between what we know is the right thing to do, having the information to do it, having the intention to do it, being inspired to do it, and that's why this is beyond inspired. 
how do we then make that loop? And as I've said before, there are loads and loads of brilliant models and techniques out there, but I've chosen this one because this is a synthesized model of behavior change taken with the field of health psychology, and it is what we would call a meta-model. It is basically 25 years of research, of evidence, not of theory and hypotheses, but actual evidence of what makes people change their behavior in relation initially to health risks, but completely applicable across different fields to the point where there's an entire handbook that specifies environmental risk as one of the main areas that this should and could be being used. But those of us who are in psychology, many of us are just not getting ourselves in the right places to do this. Many of us are not being asked. So what we're trying to do now is come in and say, you know what, there are some things that you can use and we can help you use, and this is one of them. Combi is unbelievably simple at one level. It simply says that if you want someone's behavior to change, yours or anyone else's, you need to be capable you need to have opportunities, and you need to want to do it. It's that simple. But what that looks like in different contexts for different people is hugely different. And that's where a whole load more goes behind the model in what does constitute capability, psychologically and physically, in a certain context for a certain behavior. But at one level, it's a brilliant checklist, because what's happened, and some of the examples we've heard earlier, is some incredible initiatives have simply just managed to motivate people, or they've equipped them with some knowledge and capability, or they've given them an opportunity, or two out of the three, but not all three. But how better to bring this model to life than to, give, to take you back to another um, environmentally specific example? Thanks, Jackie. So, five years ago, I left the BBC, and I've I'm a freelance consultant, but I do a lot of work with these people. Blue Marine Foundation, you may not have heard of. They're philanthropy-funded, so they don't have to have big membership. Um, and they just get on and do things. And they're very, very effective in ocean conservation. Very agile, very, very innovative. And I've set up a media unit there. And everything we do there is focused not on what I used to be focused on, large audiences, you know, millions and millions of people, all of that, you know. My mum would be proud, but nothing's actually getting done. Um, and actually going, no, it's about conservation outcomes. And in particular, audience action outcome. What audience are we talking to? And this is really important and where many mistakes are made. What audience are we talking to? What action do we need that audience to take as a result of the media we chuck at them or the ideas we chuck at them? And most crucially, how do those actions add up to a conservation outcome that is real? that is actually real. So here's a real-world example of where we have achieved something very, very big and very, very real in four years. So first of all, uh, Blue Marine Foundation and a coalition of um, uh, British NGOs, um, big ones like the RSPB and Marine Conservation Society, had a brilliant idea. I, ha I hasten to add, not my idea. And the idea is called the Blue Belt, which is... You may know that uh, the United Kingdom has these very odd little hang-ups from its rather unillustrious um, imperial past, and we own these little bits of land down the middle of the Atlantic, in particular for this um, story. Um, the British Overseas Territories, these islands you may have heard of, but you probably haven't been to. And... The idea is we put green belts around our cities. Why don't we put blue belts around our islands? Genius. Absolutely genius. And all I have to tell you is that in the international law of the sea, which was probably written in 15-something when boats were wooden, 
um, the, the law says that even if you owned a, a piece of rock the size of this stage, you also have full national jurisdiction for 200 nautical miles in every direction, which is a lot. And just to um, uh, sum that up, if you added up the British Overseas Territories and said, why don't we make a blue belt around them and turn them all into marine protected areas, you get four million square kilometers of new marine protected areas, just like that. And guess what? You don't even have to ask permission beyond this place because it's British, right? This is a planning decision. Get that, a planning decision. And four million square kilometers declared by one government becomes the biggest single act of marine conservation ever undertaken by any government any time in history. Now, don't tell me that isn't a brilliant idea. Brilliant idea. So why didn't it happen, right? Absolute no-brainer. Absolute no-brainer. And Blue Marine came to me and they said, Tim, we've won all the intellectual arguments, but we're losing the communications war, to paraphrase. And that was my task, is how do you make that happen? So what we did is... Again, informed by Jackie's approach, which was actually, let's not just do a big Extinction Rebellion and make a big noise and just, you know, congratulate ourselves for just kind of rebelling. Let's actually make this happen. Let's really make this happen. And this is how we did it. So we started with how does change actually happen? Not how you want it to happen, but how does it actually happen? And it happens in here. And you need about 500 individuals to vote. They walk into lobbies and things, right? And then legislation happens. And that's what we were looking at. And weirdly, you no need to read the, read the, the, the words, this is called a charter. This is, a, this is a, a parliamentary instrument that was probably originally handwritten. And there are these books in parliament. I have no idea this existed. And it basically says, we the undersigned agree to make this happen as MPs. And we sign it as MPs, right? So what I was looking at was what's the combi here that's going to make those MPs see the light and actually do this, right? So we set ourselves a target. If we could get 100 MPs to sign this charter, then it's a thing, right? 100 MPs out of about 500, 450 of them can vote. That's a thing. So how do we do that? Because that was our target. That was the audience. You see what the action is. You see what the outcome is. Absolutely clear and focused. So my audience went down from 5 million to 500, but they were the right 500 people. So I created a, a, a campaign, which some of you may have come across, called Back the Blue Belt. It's as simple as that. Just get behind it. Sign the bloody charter is what it really meant. All right? So we needed an opportunity, and I knew that 11 weeks after they asked me to do this, there was this series that my mates were making called Blue Planet 2, and I also knew that, thinking about your audience and what state they were in, that we had an opportunity to get the British public to harass their MPs. Simple as that. So we had to then flip it to say, what can we do to get to, if you like, combi the British public? Because what I did know was that they were going to fall in love with the ocean 11 weeks from then, right? And then towards the end of the series, this was going to drop. 
right? You were probably there, and you felt that, and you went, that's wrong, and the British public were going to feel this intense sense of moral indignation at the same time as utter powerlessness, all right? Because they didn't feel they had the opportunity to do something. They had the motivation. They really wanted to save the ocean. And they probably had, they, maybe they had the capability, don't know, but they just didn't feel they had the opportunity. So we said that. That was our campaign. And so what we did is we used social media, and just at those points in Blue Planet 2, where everyone was just going, oh my God, this is horrendous. What can I do? We go, do that. Do that. It's a planning decision, and we can do that. We can do that. Four million square kilometers, and you can be part of it. And how do we do that? We got lots of different advocates to just give this incredibly simple, notice, very positive message, right? No dead turtles here, just smiley, friendly people going, yes, we can, right? And not just famous people like rowers and, and uh, TV adventurers, but everybody. So we got the surfers out, we got the paddleboarders out, and we just got everyone to just hold up these signs. It's as simple as that. What does this mean? Drive to, the, drive to the hashtag. And then actually what happens is everyone goes here. This is our website. We thought we were going to have to build this enormous website with lots and lots of information on it. But actually, no. Because all we needed to do is play that combi thing and go, you have the opportunity to do this. You have the capability to do this. And I already know you have the motivation to do this. And things started to happen. So that's our website. Pretty cool, huh? Pretty, pretty complex. So notice, you can help protect 4 million square kilometers of ocean if you tell your MP to back the blue belt now. Crucially, it takes a minute. We, we, we planned it that way. Just enter your postcode below. Put your postcode in, and then it encourages you to particularly use Twitter to tell your MP, I'm a constituent of yours. Back the bloody blue belt, mate. All right? Planning decision. We can do this in four years. 4 million square kilometers. Very easy. And in the workshop, we can, I can go into this a bit more, but basically, we set a, a, a target of 100 MPs. We stopped counting at 285, because that's a parliamentary majority, right? This was going to happen, because we just removed those barriers and said to people, yes, you can, yes, you can, yes, you can. And the MPs that did sign the, the charter... We change the algorithm so that if you put your postcode in, you go, well done, Thangham Debonair in Bristol has already signed the charter. Why don't you thank her? So they all turned into heroes overnight. And apparently, the Houses of Parliament turned into this sort of two, two states in one building where there were really depressed people who were being harassed and looking like failures and people who were strutting along feeling like heroes. And they came flocking these MPs. They came flocking. I've got loads of pictures of people looking like idiots, holding up signs. And uh, the way this turned out was votes happened. We could hold their feet to the coals because they'd signed a charter. And the charter says, otherwise I can shaft you. And I'm very delighted to say that in the last couple of years, you may have noticed Ascension Island, St. Helena, Tristan da Cunha, South Georgia and the South Sandwich Islands are now fully protected marine um, protected areas. They are fully protected, they are fully funded, and it happened. 
So in four years, we went from a brilliant idea, no one's listening, to actual legislation and getting close now to four million square kilometers of new marine protected areas in the bag. There you go. You'll see why I didn't just try and explain the theory of Combi. <laughs> so, fantastic example. But we said beyond inspired. So that was Tim using Tim's control, influence, network, spheres, expertise, skills. Combi is really simple, so long as you know how to fill the C, the O and the M with the right things, with the right people. As he pointed out, you have to know who you're trying to change. You have to know exactly what. So we can't just ask people to be more sustainable. We can't just say we need people to consume more ethically. We need to say we need these people and we want them to do that thing that you can physically see them doing differently or stop doing it or start doing the new thing. And when we do that, we can employ techniques that just mean that we haven't, we're never going to just change everyone we want to change all of the time, but we really dramatically increase our probability of them doing something differently rather than saying, wow, yes, I feel utterly inspired and motivated and now I'm going to run in circles because I'm not sure where to start. So what's your impact? What would your combi moment be? What's the behavior? Who are the people? Is it you? Is it somebody else? Because you can go in and there is a reading list at the end of here and you can start to plot out what combi looks like for your context. And that's the invitation to come to our workshop and look and say, with my skill sets, with my knowledge, with my passions, do combi on yourself. What am I capable of? What do I have the opportunity to do? And what, crucially, do I actually want to do? Because if we keep flogging ourselves to do the things we don't want to do, eat the foods we really don't enjoy eating, it's not going to work. We have to look at the things that feel like we've got, we've got the end part, how do we do the other two, or whichever way around it is. So there are ways in which we can take ourselves on a journey, and that's the invitation. If you can't come to the workshop, the invitation still stands to go and have a look at how this could apply to you and the people that you know you have in your spheres of influence through your business, through your personal life, through your networks. And this, this gets called Ikigai, but I am told that um, some of those people in Japan are not happy with the way we, we, we've, we've changed it over and, and given it our language. So for now, this gets called the sweet spot. But it's a good start again to say, what am I already good at? What do I love doing? And then ideally, what do I think is actually useful out in the world with those things? And that's where real change happens. And really, these are all different ways of saying the same thing. That, that, that sweet spot maps really nicely onto saying, what do I feel highly capable of? What do I feel I have opportunities in? And what do I simply want to do? But with all of these things, and anyone who's ever made grand New Year's resolutions knows this, we don't transform ourselves or anyone else overnight. We make small incremental changes until they're habits. Every one of us has bad habits, and we know it's really hard to stop doing them. The good news is, when you form a new good habit and you keep doing it, it's really hard to stop that too. So if you want to enable others, help them start something small, get them doing it every day or every week or however long, and honestly, the repetition will be, and they'll honestly not be able to stop doing it after a while. So if we can do it with bad habits, we can do it with good ones. It just takes a bit more thought, a bit more intention, and a little bit more work. Thanks very much for joining us. We hope that's inspired you and given you some proper actionable insight. Please look out for the next episode. And if you haven't signed up for the film versions, please visit the Blue Earth website at blueearthsummit.com. Earth Summit is happening from the 11th to the 13th of October 2022 in the great city of Bristol. 
We believe in the power of the outdoors to improve our health and further establish purpose-led business. Register your interest at blueearthsummit.com.